Arachne depicted the lustful predations of the gods. Here was Zeus as a bull, cutting through blue waves with a terrified Europa on his back. There he was as a snow-white swan nestling against Leda. There he was again as a spotted green snake raping Persephone. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative Podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today I'll be talking with Sarah Isles Johnston, who has selected her retelling of the myth of Arachne and Athena from her new book to be published later this year by Princeton University Press. Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for Modern Readers. In Gods and Mortals, Sarah retells a whopping 140 Greek myths. Sarah Isles Johnston is College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of Religion at Ohio State University and a core member of the Project Narrative faculty. Sarah also holds an appointment in the Department of Classics. She has published widely and influentially about ancient Greek literature, religion, and culture. In addition to Gods and Mortals, her books include Restless Dead, Encounters Between Living, the Living and the Dead in Ancient Greece, 1999, Ritual Texts for the Afterlife, Orpheus and the Bacchic Gold Tablets, co-authored with Fritz Graf, 2007, second edition, 2013, Ancient Greek Divination, 2008, and the Story of Myth, 2018. In honor of Sarah's milestone birthday, her former doctoral students will sponsor a symposium on myth here at Ohio State later this week. An ongoing interest of Sarah's research is how people come to hold the religious beliefs that they do. Sarah asks, for example, what makes people believe in God or gods or demons or angels or saints or ghosts or ifrits or banshees or anything else. In her recent work, Sarah has been focusing particularly on how narratives create and sustain such beliefs and how they help to underwrite the rituals that accompany belief. Gods and Mortals is Sarah's attempt to put what she's learned about effective narratives into practice. Sarah, is there anything you'd like to say about your retelling of Arachne and Athena before you read it? And is there anything you'd like our listeners to pay special attention to as you read? Thanks, Jim. Maybe I should say a little bit about why I chose this myth out of all of them that I put in the book, why it's this myth that has fascinated me and troubled me for my entire life. I'm an avid sewer and knitter. When I retire, I hope to learn to weave as well. I just absolutely love to work with fiber, and I've always been that way as far back as I can remember. I've also loved Greek myths as long as I can remember, and because the story of Arachne is one that's always included in children's mythology books, I encountered it very early in life. It's always upset me that a woman who was extraordinarily good at skills, like those that I cultivated myself, came to a very bad end in this story, and perhaps an unfair end too, although that's open to question. Much of the way that I describe Arachne at the start of my story is based on my own experiences with fibers and their colors. 
I love the feel of fabric and yarn in my hands, and I also love to go to fabric and yarn stores and just stare at the many, many different colors and textures of the raw stuff that's there waiting to be turned into something. So you might listen for some version of that when I describe who Arachne is. In my telling, I also describe Arachne's fingers continuing to move as if she's still weaving, even when she lies down at night. That's taken from my own experience as well. Sometimes my fingers do that too. I think, in other words, I understand how much Arachne loves what she does, how much she lives for this. And I don't think that's usually emphasized when other people tell this story. I'll make one more comment before I read. The story in my book that comes just before the story of Arachne is about Niobe, a very prideful, vain woman who draped herself in jewels and expensive clothing and who boasted excessively about her 14 children. The gods Apollo and Artemis punish her for her arrogance and vanity in really terrible ways. So I'm alluding to that story at the very start of Arachne's myth. Okay, Sarah, thanks very much. Uh, so here's Sarah Johnston reading her retelling of the myth of Arachne and Athena. Before Niobe became queen of Thebes, while she was still just a girl in Lydia, she knew another girl named Arachne. Although they came from different social classes, Niobe was the daughter of King Tantalus, whereas Arachne's father, Idmon, was of no particular importance, they were bound by a common love of textiles. Niobe loved to drape herself in beautiful fabrics, and Arachne loved to create them. Arachne was, in fact, renowned throughout Lydia for her skill as a spinner and a weaver. The neighboring nymphs would leave their springs and trees to watch her work, marveling at how fine were the threads that she teased from her spindle, how evenly she beat her weft, and how gracefully she strode back and forth before her loom, passing her bobbin through the shed of the warp. Her fingers caressed the threads as she worked, and when she lay down at night, her empty fingers continued to move, longing for threads that were no longer there. But it was for color and the stories that color helped her tell that Arachne was most renowned. Idmon was a dyer by trade, coaxing yellow from buckthorn berries, red from the matter plant, purple from the local shellfish. Arachne had grown up surrounded by hanks of newly dyed thread drying bright in the sun. She gazed at yellow and saw Callisto's pelt, at red and saw Hephaestus's forge, at purple and saw Europa's robe. The green extracted from Delphinium became, in her mind's eye, the Arcadian forest through which Pan wandered, and the blue extracted from Wode became the sea from which Aphrodite sprang. All of these colors and more suffused her textiles. All of these stories and more were narrated by her fingers. When she cut a finished piece from her loom and unrolled it, finally making visible the entire tale, her admirers stood enthralled. Justifiable was Arachne's fame. Justifiable were the praises she won. It takes only a moment for a life to change ineluctably but more than a single footstep to reach the fatal precipice. Arachne fell into the habit of considering her art to be completely her own. 
Her mother had died when she was young, and she felt that she had learned little from local women. Her gifts seemed to flow from her fingers of their own accord. Lacking real rivals, she had never learned the grace of humility. Sometimes, admirers would tell her that she had been blessed by Athena, but she understood this only metaphorically. One day, when a townswoman repeated that phrase, Arachne mumbled, never breaking her pace in front of the loom, Blessings or not, let Athena descend and compete with me. I'd bet my life that I'd win. Though mumbled, the words reached Athena's ears. Disguising herself as an old woman, she squeezed through the crowd around Arachne. Be careful, child, Athena said. It's one thing to claim preeminence amongst mortals, and you rightly do so, but another to claim supremacy over a god. Athena can be merciful. Ask her pardon now, and you may yet escape her wrath. Arachne answered, Go home and preach to your kinfolk, Grandma. Let Athena see to her own affairs. Suddenly, the old woman vanished, and Athena was there. The sun seemed to dim against her steely brilliance. The air grew cooler and the spirit of the crowd turned somber. Everyone but Arachne fell to their knees and bowed their heads. As for Arachne, she was caught unprepared. Her cheeks turned first red, then ashen white. She should, stood still as a stone in front of her loom, and for once her fingers stopped moving. But no one excels without cultivating determination. Arachne, poor, foolish girl, shook herself into action. She ripped from her loom a half-done textile and prepared the header of a new one. Conjuring her own loom from the air, Athena did the same. How different were their chosen topics. At the center of Athena's web was her own triumph over Poseidon, when the two, bestowing gifts, had contended for the city that became Athens. The olive tree that she'd given and the spring that was his gift were so wondrously lifelike that it seemed as if the first could be watered by the second. Around this centerpiece, Athena wove warnings to Arachne. Scene after scene showed mortal hubris and its wages, people turning into mountains, birds, and trees for contending with divinities. Arachne depicted the lustful predations of the gods. Here was Zeus as a bull, cutting through blue waves with a terrified Europa on his back. There he was as a snow-white swan nestling against Leda. There he was again as a spotted green snake raping Persephone. Nor was it only Zeus that Arachne portrayed. Poseidon, in the form of a black stallion, was mounting blonde Demeter. Apollo, cloaked in shepherd's brown, was impregnating the nymph Issae. The scenes that Arachne depicted, censuring the gods, were astoundingly varied, but through the subtlety of her skill, she managed to suggest a dreadful unity. The textiles done, the weaver stepped back to regard them. It was immediately clear whose was technically superior. Neither Athena nor Envy herself could find fault with Arachne's artistry or her skill as a weaver. 
ice-gray fury filled Athena's heart. She kicked at her own loom weights, sending them spinning across the ground like tops, and then, her anger unrelieved, turned her wrath against Arachne's work. Betraying the very craft that she claimed to champion, Athena tore the beautiful fabric to shreds. Then, seizing a bobbin, Athena beat its creator over the head. Arachne, too proud to endure such humiliation, looped a noose around her neck and jumped. Before she could die, however, Athena grabbed her by the waist, slackening the rope. With a trace of pity in her voice, Athena said, Live on, blasphemous girl, even if you hang forever. And then she sprinkled upon Arachne the juice of an herb that Hecate had cultivated. Immediately, Arachne's hair, nose, and ears fell off. She rapidly shrank until she could scarcely be seen. Her arms and legs disappeared into her abdomen, making it bulge like a tiny ball. Arachne was now a spider. When Athena took away Arachne's arms, she also took away Arachne's thumbs, an artisan's most useful tools. But she permitted Arachne's restless fingers to remain. Now they sprang from her bulbous abdomen, four to a side. With them, Arachne learned to work such colorless threads as she could still spin and to weave a new kind of textile, although each one was as drab as the next. And whenever a fly or moth dared to disturb her weaving, Arachne paralyzed it with poison and spun her threads around it like a tiny bobbin, a grim trophy of her skills. Thank you, Sarah. A lot to dig into, I think. But let's start with maybe some initial observations about how you've tried to align your mortal readers in relation to the principles of the story, the mortal Arachne and the god Athena. I decided to really emphasize Arachne's ordinary background at the start of the story by telling you, for example, that Arachne's father, Idmon, was of no particular importance and that Niobe, who was the daughter of one king and the wife of another, was of a very different social class from Arachne. To make a person of ordinary status like this, the center of a Greek myth was unusual. Myths tended to be about extraordinary people such as heroes or, for that matter, Niobe. So this myth must have already had extra resonance for its ancient audiences for that very reason. Arachne must have seemed much more like one of them. I also wanted to convey to my readers how challenging it was to create the beautiful dyes that were used to weave tapestries in antiquity. I ended up, in fact, doing a lot of research on how dyers did that, which gave me that paragraph in which I talked about getting yellow from buckthorn berries and green from delphinium and so on. All of that was really fascinating for me to learn, but it also made me better appreciate how really precious colored thread and colored cloth must have been and how it was people of lowly status who were producing it, even though they probably weren't always getting much of a chance to enjoy it. Yeah, that's good. Maybe just one thing to build on there, the idea that Arachne has this gift of vision, what she can see in the when she sees these colors, right? And it's almost like, you know, she sees 
like parts of larger narratives. So there's a, I don't know if you were going for this, but I just maybe talk a little bit about the connection between Arachne as a weaver and Arachne as storyteller. Yeah, those are really tightly entwined. And I should be clear that the person from antiquity who narrates this myth, the, the poet Ovid, he really focuses on that too. And because in his Metamorphoses, He's telling lots and lots of myths. He uses this as sort of a point of entry to narrate more myths. I mentioned what Arachne wove into her tapestry relatively briefly. I said things like Zeus carrying Europa on his back, but Ovid goes into a little bit more detail. So there's that. In other words, it's sort of a function that Ovid has given the myth because he wants to tell myths. But for me, it really does ring true with what an artist of fiber is doing, even if that person is not literally telling stories in the way that Arachne does, to create something out of fiber is to be meaning to communicate something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Right. So, you know, so, you know, and that, that idea that she can see in her mind's eye, you know, for example, the Arcadian forest when she looks at the green. You know, that, that, and that kind of thing. So nice. The other thing sort of at the center of the story is this contest of, between them, Arachne and Athena as weavers, plays out as a competition between their different views of the relations between gods and mortal, uh, mortals. Mortal hubris and its dangers for Athena, the lustful predations of the gods for Arachne. Do you feel that what's at stake for readers is not just who's the superior weaver, but who has the superior ethical position on this question of the relation between gods and mortals? Oh, yeah, definitely. And you want to remember, too, that although Athena uses the, the, the borders of her tapestry to show mortal hubris and its dangers, in the center she has placed a picture of herself beating Poseidon in a contest that decided which god would possess the city that became known as Athens. So, in other words, Athena is using her weaving to boast that even a god who was older than she was, namely Poseidon, could not beat her in a contest. Mm -hmm. Athena is extremely prideful, too. But the ethics by which the gods live don't punish divine pridefulness. The gods often remind me of bullies. And like human bullies, they pick on weaker entities rather than on each other, that is, humans instead of gods. Yeah, and, and so just to maybe draw out something, right, that it's Arachne's pride in her ability that sort of sets off Athena, right? That People are saying, well, give credit to Athena, and she says, well, you know, it's, it's me, right? And then Athena comes disguised and gives her another chance, and, and then she does it. So, so in a way, I mean, I, I guess uh, your comment raises a question, or is it a a double standard in a way that, that Arachne is being held to a standard that Athena isn't because, you know, that pridefulness isn't a problem among gods, but it is among, among morals. Yep. And myth after myth after myth makes that same point. So it was clearly something that really engaged the Greeks, the unfairness of it, but also the absolute necessity of living by that standard. And I, I think I should make a remark here on children's mythology books because they often include this story of Arachne. They often include other various stories that are about hubris. In other words, are about mortals who do things that imply that they are just as good as the gods, and then they get slammed down for that. 
I know the effect that that had on me, having consumed this over and over and over as a child. I kind of entered adult life being very careful all the time, <laughs> never to be arrogant, even though I wasn't surrounded by gods. And, you know, nonetheless, I was very, very worried about that. And I hope someday someone does a study of how these myths affect the children who consume them. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, you're making a very good point. It's, it's absolutely a double standard. Yeah, yeah, okay. So maybe some other things, uh, you know, about the competition within a competition, which is, is sort of at the center of the myth of competition about views of the relation between gods and morals. And one thing that strikes me is the very clear outcome, right? And your, your line, quote, neither Athena nor Envy herself could find fault with Arachne's artistry or her skill as a weaver. So that, you know raises questions about relation between ethics and aesthetics here, right? The, the, is, should, should your readers think, okay, well, you know, there's something superior in Arachne's view of the relationship between gods and morals because, or is, is that connected to her superiority in weaving? That's, that's a tricky question. It, it would be really easy to say, well, both ethics and aesthetics are cast aside from Athena. And mm-hmm reached the conclusion which Plato had already reached, you know, more than 2,500 years ago, that the gods who in Greek religious practice, as opposed to Greek myths, are expected to uphold ethics and punish people if they acted unethically, are being shown here to be really unethical themselves. But I hope that the story, as I've told it, also prompts in people the realization that nevertheless, aesthetics should stand above ethics, or at least should stand separate from ethics. Because Arachne did behave badly. Boasting to be better than a god was immoral by Greek standards and really stupid. (laughs) So Athena had every right to punish Arachne for her hubris. But I hope that my readers and listeners are just as horrified as I am when Arachne's beautiful textile is completely destroyed by the goddess who was understood to help women with their weaving. Athena is the patron goddess of weaving. That part of the story upsets me still when I read it, that any um, artist, as Athena was, an artist of fiber, could be so ghastly as that. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, you've taken it, I think, in a nice direction, like so that there's not this clear cut, okay, one to one, ethical aesthetic superiority equals ethical superiority. They're not, ethics and aesthetics are not that tied one to one. But yet in the way in which Athena's response to the aesthetic superiority of Arachne is ethically problematic, right, Then, then we... You know, as you say, it makes you angry when you when you think about that, right? And that that there's something there's some kind of an ethical failure on Arachne's sort of inability to accept the aesthetic superiority of Arachne, and she she acts by destroying something that you know otherwise we would think she should admire, right? Yeah, I, I like that a lot. So it's a it's a more complicated kind of relation between ethics and aesthetics than I was suggesting with my sort of simple-minded question at the beginning. Yeah. 
And it's, it's there in other Greek myths, too. Uh-huh. Any human who becomes really good at creating things, and I'll use artistry in a rather broader way than we usually do to, to encompass creativity with the hands. So, for example, the mythic character Daedalus, who most people have heard of, who, among other things, creates the first wings. That's by far not the only thing he creates, but that's the one that most of us remember. And he creates these wings, and it's those wings that, lead to the death of his son. So there's this real nervousness in Greek myths about advances in human accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Even if the gods themselves don't directly punish them, they're going to come with punishment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So it goes back in a way to what you were saying about hubris, right? That, you know, and then if you pay attention to that, you you, you want to avoid it at all costs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Then I think one other thing about the the competition and Athena's response is that, you know, Athena's icy anger and her destruction of Arachne's weaving, you know, I think it you leave it open for your readers to see what Arachne does as another version of the lustful predation of the gods, sort of what Arachne is depicting then sort of gets enacted in this way by uh, Athena's response. Yeah, that's a very elegant way of expressing it. The gods are petulant, narcissistic bullies in Greek myth. And I feel nervous even saying that. Um, I hope I'm not struck by lightning. But they, they are. And they prey on humans in many ways. You got to remember that in Greek myth, humans as we know them only exist as a form of punishment. Because first the gods create men. And then the men do something that makes the gods mad. There's different variations of this story. But anyway, the gods decide that men have to be punished, and they create Pandora, the first woman. And then, you know, Pandora has daughters, and those marry other men, and pretty soon we're off and running with the human race as we now have it. Well, maybe that's not a lustful predation, but that's a pretty awful comment on how the gods feel about Humans. Yeah, 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 good. So, okay, then maybe we could turn to the sort of climax and ending. So, Arachne's suicide attempt, and then the that in itself is worthy, I think, of some commentary. And then the, Athena's response, and is Athena having pity on Arachne, or is she trying to extend the punishment? Maybe take them one at a time. What What are... Arachne's suicide attempt, just like, how do we understand that, or or how do you understand that? So the poet Ovid, when he tells the story, leaves it very ambiguous. He leaves ambiguous whether Athena saves her from suicide out of pity or as a, a further sort of punishment. He also leaves it a little ambiguous as to whether this was the proper thing for Arachne to be doing in the first place. And so it's really hard for me to give you a definitive answer to that. Scholars of Ovid have certainly argued about it for for centuries, and I I don't think I can make any headway that they hadn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it does, interestingly, reflect this motif in Greek myths that even when the gods take pity on humans for whatever reason, they usually really bungle things and end up making matters, at least from the human's point of view, 
worse than they already were. And so depending on how you feel about spiders, you might say that that's what's happened here. Athena saves Arachne, but she makes Arachne into something that maybe Arachne would never want to be. Maybe death was better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then if we think about sort of Arachne as spider, right, and think about the punishment side, right, so one of the things you said in the introduction, the, the idea of the restless fingers, right, so the restless fingers are there, but she loses her thumbs, right? And also she loses her, her ability to work with color, right? So those seem like two huge things. Yet the restless fingers can still do some work, and, but the work they do is a kind of predation right, to others. So, you know, I don't know, thoughts about, about that, that, the, the, those features of the ending. Yeah, Athena has managed to make Arachne into a weaver who is just as predacious as Athena herself was. There's a really ghastly irony in that. For most of my life, I was very, very afraid of spiders. And so that's another reason this, this story stuck with me, because we start with someone who works in fibers, like I love to, and we end with something that I'm terribly, terribly afraid of. I'm not really afraid of spiders anymore, but this still resonates with me. She's making gray textiles. She can't use her thumbs, and her life, at least as the Greeks and most of us view it, is spent killing other things in this very creepy, sneaky way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So let me can we get into some of the other sort of dimensions of your version of it that you're you're telling retelling so one of the things that stuck out to me is that your narrator will deliver some gnomic statements it takes only a moment for a life to change ineluctably but more than a single footstep to reach the fatal precipice and that gnomic statement also sort of signals a turn in the narrative like we we're finished with the exposition we're learning about arachne who she is or her skill as a weaver and then we get this sentence, and then we get to the Athena part. And then later on, no one excels without cultivating determination. The narrator takes on a certain kind of you know, personality with exclamations like, how different were their chosen topics? So maybe talk about how you're handling the narration. And Here again, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing from the best. I'm stealing from Greek poets. I'm not literally stealing the gnomic statements. I, I made... Uh, those up, but the use of gnomic statements is very common in Greek poetic narrations of myths, and poets were the main people who told myths in antiquity, at least publicly. So a Greek who went to a festival would expect to hear a narration of a myth that contained that kind of thing. They helped the audience see how the myth might serve as a kind of model Mm -hmm. for their own lives, even if it was an exaggerated model. They would hear the story of Arachne or, or a story like that and think, oh, you know, if I'm not careful, something like that might very well happen to me. Which, by the way, is a function that modern horror fiction often serves mm-hmm. as well. And it I won't get into this today, but it often has little gnomic statements hidden in it, too. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, good. So one of the things that it also struck out to me, and just to do a little bit of a, a more kind of close reading of the narration, 
So when you are telling about Arachne's weaving of the scenes of lustful predation, you give us the sequence of verbs uh, with, uh, associated with Zeus. So Zeus as a bull cutting through waves with Europa on his back. Zeus nestling against Leda, and then that sort of sequence ends with, there he was again as a spotted green snake raping Persephone. So we go from cutting through to nestling against to raping. You want to comment on that sequence? And Yeah, I did think hard about that. Cutting through the waves, I was trying to make that sound heroic and grand. Mm-hmm. Nestling against Lita, I hoped sounded cozy and affectionate. But obviously, raping is inescapably dreadful, especially because in this case, it's Zeus's own daughter that he is raping. So I was trying to remind readers of something that by now they probably already knew if they had chosen to read the myths in my book in the order in which I gave them. Namely, that even when the lovemaking of the gods seems relatively joyful or beautiful, it's really never the case, with maybe one or two exceptions, that the woman has given her consent. Now, in itself, that general idea was already there in Ovid. When he tells the myths of what Arachne weaves, he he means us to hear the fact that the gods keep doing this to mortal women. But I chose those, those verbs that you pointed out as my own way of trying to communicate that idea of saying, well, this sounds grand, or this sounds really nice for the woman, but don't forget what is really happening. Yeah. Right, right. And, I, you know, as I read it, too, I see it sort of going you know, back to sort of where we started and the idea of, you know, how you're positioning your readers in terms of this competition and, you know, who's, <laughs> you know, the, something about the predations of the gods sort of lead us to align with Arachne. And, yeah. So a couple other things that I noticed that you, you know, sort of, Patterns of repetition in the retelling, you know, the terms of a color and colorless and your references to Arachne's restless fingers. And and there's a really, I think, kind of artistry to the way you do that because, you know, you, you sort of see that see those things in the beginning and then they, they have a real big payoff, I think, in the end. And we try to understand, you know, what, what that condition of becoming a spider means for Arachne. So I don't know if you want to comment. I'm just commenting on, you know, I really admired the way you did that. I'm really happy to hear that because although I work hard at all 140 myths (laughs) that I put in this book, this was one of them I worked the hardest at. And you already know from what I've said earlier today some of the reasons that I wanted to work hard at it. But it also started to fascinate me as I worked on it how those patterns could be built and played with. So, yeah, yeah, they're you're right. They're you're absolutely right that they're there, and I'm yeah. I'm happy that you saw them. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done. As we move to the end of the discussion, I'd like to just get you re- talk a little bit about how time gets handled in the in the retelling. So, you know, I was saying before we have this kind of you know introduction, which is gives us a lot of information, kind of exposition, 
And then we have the gnomic statement, which kind of turns to the main action. And then, you know, the greatest duration is given to the contest in its immediate aftermath, right? So, and that makes perfect sense. That's the, you know, give more time to the, to the climactic action. But then the aftermath is really interesting to me in that way because it's told very efficiently, right? That, you know, Arachne jumps with the noose around her neck, Athena intervenes, and then we sort of get this summary of, you know, what happens for Arachne, you know, going forward for, you know, so many, 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 you know, a long stretch of time. That leads to a sense that, you know, so much is compressed, so much time is compressed in those last paragraphs. And then you end with that, I think, very powerful metaphor of, this kind of grim trophy that Arachne is left with this competition ends with her, you know, having this grim trophy. So just, you know, thoughts about your handling of time? I didn't really realize I'd done that until you pointed it out. But I do think it helps to accomplish something that I try to convey throughout the book, which is very close to what you've already said. And which is, in fact, expressed in the gnomic statement we were just talking about. It takes only a moment for a life to change ineluctably, but more than a single footstep to reach the fatal precipice. Namely that mortals in Greek myths live their pretty mundane mortal lives, never really aware that those lives are slowly bringing them to a place that will utterly change them in really horrible ways. So the contest between Athena and Arachne took, I don't know, I've, I've never tried to <laughs> weave on an ancient loom, but let's say it took several hours or maybe a day. Right. That's not much in the span of Arachne's life up till then. Right. But in those hours, everything suddenly changes. Yeah. And everything that comes after is again going to be mundane and go on and yeah. on yeah. and on. So what you've made me realize is I've sort of, flipped the time relationship by focusing on what is the moment yeah. that changes the life rather than on either of the lives that come before or after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and then I think part of the force of the ending is the sense that it's unchanging, right? It's, so we had this huge change in this moment, and and then we're in this period of stasis, basically, for Arachne. And for a lot of other characters in Greek myth who get changed into things, Niobe, the woman whose story I tell right before Arachne, the gods turn her into a stone up on a mountain. She's a stone forever, or Lycan gets turned into a wolf. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, right, right, okay. Any final comments you'd like to make on the retelling, Sarah? Not Really, I've enjoyed this immensely, and talking to you has helped me see things in the story. And here I don't mean my story, my telling. It's helped me see things in the story of Arachne that I didn't see before, even after all these years, I won't tell you how many years, that yeah. I've been thinking about it. So yeah. Yeah. thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, well, Sarah, thank you. And I think, you know, it's a great to just have an expert in the in the period, sort of work as a practitioner, you know, as you say, you've studied all this, and now, all right, well, let me put it into practice, and I, 
you know, I find your retelling, you know, very powerful. So, and I, I very much enjoyed our discussion. So, well, maybe I should add one more thing then. Yeah. Um, suppose it's my official skill as a scholar of Greek myth that to some degree makes my retelling good. But I also realize now it's hanging out with Project Narrative all these years. <laughs> I have learned so much that I didn't know before about the intricacies of telling stories and how they affect people. So thanks for that, too. Yeah. Okay. Applied narrative theory right here with, with your experience. So thanks again, Sarah. And thank you all for listening. Happy to get your feedback. You could send it to us at projectnarrative at osu.edu or on our Facebook page or to our Twitter account at PN Ohio State. You can also find a dozen other episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. And please join us in November for our podcast with Jared Gardner. Thank you all for listening.